Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Friday, May 22nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. This week, a slew of big retailers released earnings for the first quarter, and it looks like a key designation during coronavirus lockdowns is what made all the difference. Plus, what the business of higher education looks like in the pandemic. But first, China is preparing to impose national security legislation on Hong Kong. Our Beijing bureau chief, Tom Mitchell, will explain why and what it means for Beijing's relationship with Washington. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. China's parliament today will formally authorize a plan whereby the Chinese central government will draft national security legislation for Hong Kong and insert it into Hong Kong's constitution, basically without asking anyone in Hong Kong what they think about this. And, you know, what's the reaction on, on the Hong Kong side? I know there have been protests for an extradition law that, that was eventually retracted. But, uh, you know, this is probably not going to do anything for their confidence in the Chinese government now, right? That's the big question for today is what is the reaction in Hong Kong, especially from those hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of people who've been protesting over the past year for more democracy, direct elections for the chief executive. On the other hand, there's a substantial percentage of Hong Kong's population, the pro-Beijing camp, which says this is long overdue. This was Hong Kong's responsibility to draft and pass national security legislation. We failed to do it. We're supposed to do it as early as 1997. So Beijing had to come in and do it for us. There are two mechanisms to pass national security law, according to Hong Kong's own mini constitution, the so-called basic law. One is for the Hong Kong government and the Hong Kong legislature to draft and pass it. The other is the basic law says if Beijing wants, they can take a law and basically apply it directly to Hong Kong themselves. Now, the implications of doing the latter is obviously not really in keeping with the whole one country, two systems arrangement, whereby Hong Kong was supposed to have very wide ranging autonomy. Clearly, if Hong Kong does this by itself on its own terms with Beijing's agreement, that's better for Hong Kong's supposed autonomy than Beijing saying, right, enough of this, we're going to do it. And this is how we're doing it. Why is China pushing to implement this legislation now? Uh, There's a number of reasons. One, I think they see a bit of an opportunity with the rest of the world distracted by the coronavirus. But that said, the the Chinese government has been really frustrated with the protests in Hong Kong, which they say are stirred up by foreign forces, and particularly the United States. Therefore, the developments over the past year in terms of that protest movement mean that Hong Kong desperately needs, in Beijing's view, a national security law so they can enforce national security violations as they see it. There's another element here, which is Hong Kong's legislature will have elections in September. The pro-democracy camp is likely to take a majority in those elections, and therefore that will block the Hong Kong legislative route to passing national security legislation because the pro-democracy legislators would never vote for something like this. They would never pass it. Right. And, you you know, you mentioned that that China's felt that these protests have been stirred up by the U.S. What's some of the expected fallout regarding the China-U.S. relationship? Well, two days ago, I would have told you China-U.S. relations can't get any worse. (laughs) They sure got a lot worse last night. This is really going to cause a lot of problems with the most important bilateral relationship in the world, simply because 
the U.S. will view this as a gross violation of Hong Kong's promised autonomy. They could take steps to actually retract some economic and trade privileges that Hong Kong has that other parts of China doesn't have. And it'll just stir up the rhetoric and Beijing will respond by saying, look, the U.S. is still interfering in, in our own, own affairs. Of course, the U.S. says these suggestions of foreign influence are ridiculous. This is all about the aspirations of the Hong Kong people. And Beijing caused this by not letting democracy progress as rapidly as most people in Hong Kong had hoped. Since the coronavirus lockdowns began, local and state governments in the U.S. have put businesses in one of two categories, essential and non-essential. And when it comes to retail, this label has made a huge difference in performance. The department store chain Macy's closed stores earlier this year as the virus spread. Macy's will report full first quarter earnings later this year, but it's already warned that it is set for a $1 billion quarterly loss. While retailers with the non-essential tag could still sell online, sales at many big U.S. chains were down in the first few months of this year. Meanwhile, Macy's peers J.C. Penney and Neiman Marcus both filed for bankruptcy protection this month. But the story at big box shops like Walmart and Target was very different. Both reported quarterly earnings this week, and thanks to their grocery offerings, they've been allowed to stay open during the pandemic. Walmart said that an unprecedented demand for household essentials caused its sales to spike in the latest quarter. Now, many retailers deemed non-essential have been struggling long before the outbreak, but the current environment has highlighted a divide between those who have adapted to e-commerce and those who haven't. And as foreign students stay at home and other students hesitate over taking on debt in a downturn, universities around the world are braced for a sharp drop in enrollment. That means lower tuition fees, which make up the bulk of their revenues. And restructuring, job reductions, course cuts, and even the closure of entire institutions may follow. Andrew Jack, our global education editor, has more. The current situation is very volatile. There's a huge amount of uncertainty, even going forward two or three months. So when COVID started striking, of course, first in Asia and then spreading around the world, there was an instant reaction with the needs for dealing with students, putting them into quarantine in some places, dealing with domestic students who were on foreign placements and foreign students who were not coming back, for example, from the Chinese New Year. And in a number of countries, notably the US, Canada, the UK, and Australia have become very reliant in many ways on international students. That created vast uncertainty. So at the moment, there's a lack of clarity really about provision. A lot of faculty have had to scramble to try to understand the situation, to adapt to national or local guidelines on lockdowns, the pressures of existing students, whether it's about handling their current tuition or thinking about exams at the end of their academic years. And of course, in the meantime, trying to think about the next stages and what the coming intake will have as an educational experience. Yeah, God, I mean, going to college or university is a stressful experience already. I I can't imagine having to think about this on top of a global pandemic. Um, Shifting gears about how this will impact students to how the universities themselves 
we'll deal with it. Uh, Andrew, how solvent are these schools in Europe, the U.S., and the U.K.? And what kind of restructuring might we see in the sector globally? So there's a wide variation in the financial capacity and the reserves of institutions. There's been a, something of a an arms race, if you like, are largely driven by the competitive nature now of higher education. So in trying to attract both faculty and students domestically and from around the world, there was huge investment driven by borrowing to build new infrastructure, whether it was sports facilities, student accommodation, libraries and other academic facilities and laboratories. And so now there are big pressures on whether a lot of those capital projects can continue and how much in debt a number of institutions were. There's also the issue that as universities, and this applies to the US and Canada, for example, as well as the UK, but as they became more reliant on higher fees from foreign students than sometimes their domestic intake, they were using that to cross-subsidize the research activities of their faculties. And of course, that now is uh, thrown into doubt. Okay, so Andrew, some schools are set to resume with online-only classes, and because students are missing out on the traditional benefits some universities normally offer, and when I talk about value here, I mean, you know, in-person classes, meeting new people, uh, maybe going to school in a unique campus, but those things are out of the equation. Does that mean we'll see the cost of education decrease? So I think clearly if there is more and more education that is available online, there will be a pressure and a temptation to reduce costs, if only because it's perceived widely still by many as being a less valuable or inclusive experience. Of course, the universities that are providing this, particularly in a more sophisticated way, will argue that, first of all, there's actually quite a high cost to providing online education if you're doing it properly. It's not just a question of turning on a video camera and streaming some classic university lecture. You really have to be much more creative in terms of the intensity of the experience, the duration, and the wraparound supports. So that brings substantial costs, which universities have been having to kind of invent as they go along in the past few weeks. So that's one aspect to it. And of course, others could argue that the greater flexibility of what they're offering also provides a different sort, but a high level of value. And it may be over time we see that the direct knowledge or learning experience can actually potentially be enhanced by online and technologically supported experiences. But clearly, going forwards, that's going to be a big issue. Many students will feel they're not getting value for money. They might start to shop around more. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. The FT News Briefing will be taking Monday off for Memorial Day in the U.S. and the Spring Bank holiday in the U.K. We'll be back on Tuesday. The FT News Briefing is produced by Amy Keane, Fiona Simon, and me, Mark Filipino. Our editor is Amelia Mahasik. We had help from Gavin Coleman and Michael Bruning. Our theme song is by Metaphor Music. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.